I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, and we'll be reading from chapter 7, continuing on where we've been studying for many, many weeks. But let me begin reading to you in verse 25, and then we will pray. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught the people in the temple, You know me, and you know where I'm from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to be with him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of God. Let's ask for his help in understanding and obeying it. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday under the sound of your word. Lord, may we indeed understand it with your help. And then we ask for the strength to be obedient, to change where we know we need to change, to be who we know we need to be according to your word. This will take your help. We can't do this ourselves. So, Lord, we ask that you help us be good students. And we pray this to you, the Master Teacher, in your name. Amen. Well, many of you, I'd say all of you actually, brought in with you this morning when you came in a measure of understanding along with experience that you've gathered really as long as you've been alive. Uh, Most of us don't think Uh, in terms of what we know and what we understand. I doubt any of you this morning when you woke up made an assessment of all you know, all you understand, and all you've learned. A lot of that runs in the background. And the older we get and the more comfortable we are with what we know and and how we know it, uh, we tend to 
think about those things less. We just are those things, basically. But there are times in our lives where we had to wrestle with certain things that we've come to understand. Uh, Key points in our lives, such as choosing whom we will marry. It's a big deal. You, you, You scrutinize certain things and you... You evaluate, you make an assessment, uh, you pray long and hard about some of these things, you ask the, the, the opinion of others, and then you, you make your decision. And then it really begins. You go to school for a lifetime, learning and understanding how to live together with this other person. Same is true when you begin to start a family, or you build or buy a house, uh, or you choose where to go to work. How you go about training how to become worth your paycheck at work. They're going to trade you that for skill sets and uh, all sorts of things. I think you understand the, the point that I'm making. We learn these things over time. It's a process. And the very same thing is true about our Christianity. And what we know about the Bible And how we came to know those things. And how those things that we know shape our lives and our behavior. Many of us have already made our determination as to whether or not this man from Nazareth is indeed the Son of God. But in this passage that we just read, uh, Jesus is going to say, had said, we we read through it. One of the most audacious things he's, he's said so far. But we're in severe danger as uh, Americans in the year 2019, living in the south, way away from Jerusalem, way away on a timeline from its history and its culture. We may miss a lot of this because we're just not Jewish enough. And some of this today will be uphill. We'll have to think. And we're watching people do the very same thing. They're thinking. They're evaluating. Is this really him? And there's a big controversy. And there's some that believe and some that don't believe. They're adding things up. They're making their assessment. So to understand what they understood, we'll have to look into history and we'll have to think our way through their customs. But I hope that that will be a rewarding process. And at the end, we'll be able to understand this point that Jesus makes. But first of all, chapter 7 opened last week when we began our study with his brothers coming to Jesus and saying, you should go to the feast and you should show yourself as we've seen you and perform miracles and maybe you can undo what happened after you fed the 5,000 with the loaves and fishes. Because a lot of people left after this in his discussion about the bread of life and how he's their everything. And that their motives for following him just to get a meal out of it were wrong. That this is spiritual. It's not material at all. So he had suffered quite an implosion as far as his, uh, his, his approval ratings, if you want to put it that way. His brothers have this idea. Go to the feast. That's where the biggest pile of Jewish people will be in one spot in a calendar year. That's where you need to go and that's what you need to do. And he told them, no, it's not my time for that. There will be time for certain things, but not for that. And he tells them he's not going the way they decide. And then we learn that he does go up to the feast, but several days late. 
And the way he does this is very privately, while everybody's asking where he is and is he here, he decides to begin speaking in the temple, which is about as public as you could possibly get on this specific period of time during the calendar year. So generally speaking, the people are confused about what Jesus is saying and the conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. And there's, excuse me, all sorts of people here at this feast. And as he begins to speak, most are amazed at his command of scriptures and wonder how he has that being that he hasn't studied. But in verse 25, we're actually introduced to a new group of people. That's where we started reading. And in addition to Jesus' brothers that start out the conversation of chapter 7, and then the Jewish authorities that John tells us are seeking to kill Jesus, and that's the reason why he's not going there. He's been spending his time in Galilee. And then there are all the pilgrims who have traveled into Jerusalem for this feast. They did this three times a year, and this was the most favorite of the group. But then we add... What we see in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem, these are locals, they live there. So from last week when we heard the people say, someone's trying to kill you, who's trying to kill you? What are you, demon possessed? They thought he was out of his mind because they'd never heard that anybody was trying to kill Jesus. But the people that live in Jerusalem, where the authorities are, they're in on this. So what they say in the beginning there of what we read, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Now, Jesus was not on the, the speaker's list for this conference. Nobody went to that workshop just to hear him speak. It's a big surprise that he's even there. So when people are tapping each other on the shoulders, we already learned that they speak in muted terms because to talk about this publicly could get one in trouble depending on what side of the argument you're on. But they're saying, isn't that him? The one that they want to kill, but then they follow. He's speaking openly, and they're saying nothing to him. Did they change their mind? And then there's this idea, well, maybe they've checked him out, and he checks out. Maybe he's really him. Maybe they know that he's the Messiah. But then they quickly take back this suggestion in verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, and when Christ appears... No one will know where he comes from. So they start off, if he's such a threat, why is he able to speak out loud? Then they ask themselves, don't you suppose it's possible he could really be him? But then they say, no way. Because we know that this guy's supposed to just come on the scene and nobody really knows his background. Which isn't true, because we know he should be born in Bethlehem. And that might be their hang-up, because they know him from Nazareth, which is not Bethlehem. So there's some confusion here, and there's a lot of talk about this guy. Maybe even talking while he's talking, kind of like some people do in church. They talk, you know, somebody else is talking, or Sunday school class, or, you know. I wasn't the kind of kid that got down for talking. I was the kid that got down for, or called down for staring out the window. You know, there's all different types of kids, but... Verse 28 gives us the word so, and that's kind of like a word therefore. Because of what's happened so far, so Jesus proclaimed to them. And he's going to try to explain some of these things they're worried about. He says, you know me, and you know where I come from. And that actually may be meant as a question. Might even have a bit of sarcasm in it. Oh, you know me, do you? 
Well, you don't really know me. And you don't know where I've been sent from and from where. And you don't know the one that sent me is basically what he tells them. His arguments, however, produce a dual response. Belief in some and unbelief in the other. And we'll come back to that probably at the end of our time together. But look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. That's one idea. Okay, I've heard enough. Arrest the man. He's blaspheming. But then no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. How would you like to have that type of uh, immunity? You can't be arrested because it's not time yet. And how did that all pan out? I'm not sure. We're told about that later. So let's just hold that thought. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? It's a good question. So just imagine it. There's a big feast. The entire city is absolutely swelled to capacity. And every day has its certain rituals. But in the temple, there are things that go on, and Jesus is there speaking. And everybody's muttering while he's speaking. Some agree that he's uh, a good thing. Some others agree he's leading the people astray. One group of people says, arrest him. We've heard enough. The other group says, honestly, who could do more miracles than this guy? I mean, what more evidence do you need? He's giving people sight and raising people who hadn't walked. The, the guy at the pool of Bethesda we've known for 30 years. He's walking now. So there's, there's a big diversion between these folks. And they don't agree. But here's what happens. At this point, it seems to have set off something. For whatever reason, those Jewish rulers were not arresting Jesus. Whatever reason that is, has now been categorized as a smaller problem. And they've got to stop this thing that's going on before the people get into a bigger argument. And then Rome notices. And they're all in trouble. So what we see in verse... 32 is the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So I would suppose if, if, if we're watching this play out before our eyes, things are about to get real. And that's not a small thing if we understand how the power uh, was divided and where it was concentrated and authority and how all this worked. Um, even though the chief priests and the Pharisees uh, were usually at odds with each other, they seemed to be united here in their hatred of Jesus. But even still, it would require an arrest warrant from the Sanhedrin, their, their governing body, which had all sorts of, of figures elected and, and appointed, and it was, it was a big deal. Uh, and I suppose that would take some time, how long it would take. I suppose if it's a big deal, it could go a lot quicker. You read about this sometimes, that it takes uh, months, if not years, to get a building permit for this or that or whatever else. But if the right guy knows the right company, you can get that done in the afternoon, right? Well, how long it took, we don't know. But... In the background, they're making their move. They're signing their papers. They're sending the men to go arrest Jesus. And then verse 33, while all this is going on, Jesus then said, I will be present with you a little longer. 
And then I'm going to be, or going to him who sent me. You will seek me. You will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, if he had said that, and whether or not you knew what's going on in the background or not, or maybe this delegation to arrest Jesus is standing right there. We're not sure. But we are sure in verse 35, the Jews or the people standing watching all this begin to say to themselves, what does this man intend to go that we will not find him? is Is he going into hiding? And then they say this about maybe intends to go to the dispersion. The dispersion is where all the Jews that were carried away to Babylon uh, years and years and years before and, and parents and grandparents, they were all scattered. And then some of them came back to Israel, but not all of them. There's the, they're all over the place, a big group in Alexandra. So they're thinking, well, maybe Jesus is going to go hide out in the other parts, teach Jewish people there. Because they couldn't conceive of him teaching anyone else. What's funny is that's exactly what his apostles are going to do after he leaves and gives them the Holy Spirit. They're going to carry this gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. But they're just speculating here. And then they, they finish with this question here. What does he mean? You won't find me and where I am you cannot come. So they're thoroughly confused. And maybe you are at this point in the message. I'm not sure. So let's try to unravel it and see if we can make sense of it. You'll need to know some English skills here, or even Greek skills, at least uh, the capacity to know the difference between uh, the verb tenses, past, present, or future. To understand what takes place, you'll need to know what Jesus is saying. So let's go back, look at verse 33. Jesus said to them, and this isn't abundantly apparent in the way we've got it in English, but it is in Greek because they would actually spell their words specifically to mean past, present, or future. The ending tells us. I will be with you a little longer. That's in the present. So he's saying, I'm here presently with you a little longer. And then I'm going to be or to him who sent me. And that's also said in the present. As if there's not much time. He's, he's acting like it's, it's, it's actually right here. I'm presently going to him who sent me. Then verse 34. You will seek me. That's future tense. There's coming a time in the future where you will be looking for me. And you will not find me. That's also a future. It's going to be too late for some of you. At some point you're going to decide then you want to. Find me and it's going to be too late. But then where I am, you cannot come. That's also present. So basically what he's saying is, uh, I'm right here standing in front of you. So you know where I am and where I am, you can't come. You might want to say, I already did. I'm I'm right here with you. I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying. I think this means more than that. I think it's just. It's very clear what he means is, it's not my time yet. You can come try to arrest me. And sometimes we want to make this into some kind of throwdown, don't we? All right, see what happens if you try to arrest Jesus. But we're going to learn that, it, it, that there's no fight. There's no cheering mob or, or crowd. He's not getting arrested at this point. But there's a group coming to arrest him. So how does that all play out? And what's interesting is that John completely skips over this uh, by the time 
he continues the, the passage on to verse 37. It's a new, it's a new paragraph, but he just kind of drops it. The people are confused, and just before the tension is resolved, the arresting officers get there. John jumps to the last day of the feast, is what we see in verse 37. We don't find out what happened to those arresting guards until verse 45, and that's actually next week's passage. But the inquiring mind wants to know, right? So just, just for now, let, let's skip to verse 45. But before that, let's just summarize what's going on. We've already been told in verse 30, no man's going to lay a hand on him because it's not his time yet. Jesus said, I won't be here much longer. I'm headed back to my Father who sent me. I'm here now, present tense, but where I am, you can't come, which is basically like saying you can't arrest me. So look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Now what would you expect? Well, see, there was this force field. And uh, I had the cuffs, and I got close. And then I, I just, like, bumped into a wall. It's like a, a force field, you know, like on Star Trek or something. Or maybe I got real confused, and I kind of blacked out, and I don't even remember yesterday. The way we might try to fill in the blanks, I, I don't know how many of the the fun stuff to put into movies we would use before we got down to the bottom uh boss i just i've never heard anybody talk like this i couldn't do it it just wasn't the right time you know we've we've seen this type of thing before which is play acting and it's magic but this is real so the question is between verse 45 in verse 36, what in the world did Jesus say? What is he saying that would, that would result in just your average temple guards, police officers? Hey, go arrest him and bring him back. But they go, they approach him, they hear him speaking, and they go back empty-handed. How does that happen? Well, let's look at what happens in verse 37 through verse 39 and see if we can figure out what it is that would make this man change his mind as he's done. On the last day of the feast, the great day, verse 37, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture hath said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, this is John telling us, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now this is something that will make sense as we read on in the future, but it's the first time we see the Holy Spirit having been mentioned. And the way it's mentioned is basically an editorial comment that John the author is giving us, writing it years and years later. But, and he didn't understand on this day what Jesus was saying, but he's telling us, Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, which would be given later. So we'll come back to this in our, our studies as we move forward. But this business about whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart is rivers of water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Almost similar to what we heard him say in the fourth chapter with a woman at a well. 
who said, you don't have a bucket. And he said, I'm not talking about real water. I'm talking about living water. You'll never thirst again. We went through all that. It's very similar to that. But what is going on here? And what does this even mean? What is this last day of the feast, the great day? What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus stood up and cried out? What significance does any of this have to water or to drink? And this is where we are pitifully shorthanded as to understanding this, not being Jewish and not having an understanding of Hebrew culture. I think we might know, if we know anything at all, maybe something about Passover, around uh, the holiday season, how that works. But booths, the Feast of Booths, if I'd have put out an email, all right, make sure you're ready because there's going to be a quiz on the Feast of Booths when you get to church on the 3rd. Where do you go in the Bible to learn about that? I mean, this is pretty obscure. But these are huge things. Booths meant tents. And what it's celebrating is not they're being taken out of Egypt toward the promised land. That's Passover. This is celebrating how God sustained them in the wilderness when they lived in tents. So they built small tents to remind them of what that was like and how God fed them with manna. That was feeding of the 5,000. But they also fed them water out of the rock. And that's what this has tied all within it. So what I thought I'd do to give us a, a help, because we basically... And I use this word in the best sense. We have to cheat to understand this, right? We weren't born into this. So I brought one of my commentaries uh, from a man who uh, has been to school and forgotten more than I'll ever know about some of these things. But this is D.A. Carson from his commentary on John's Gospel. And uh, this is a description of what this feast means and what was involved in it. And that will set the stage to help us answer the question, what's so different about this thing that Jesus said on this day and why it seems to have this polarizing effect on everyone? Well, on the seven days of the feast, a golden jar or flagon or flask was filled with water from the pool of Siloam. If you've been to the the Holy Land, you'll, you might recognize some of these landmarks. And was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. This happened every day of the seven days. High priest. Some people may have never seen the man before. It's a big deal and a big procession. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the shofar, that's a trumpet made out of a ram's horn. If you ever heard anybody blow one of these things, it's... It's an amazing thing to hear. Um, not at all like that trumpet that they play at the Hurricanes games. This is better than that. And the staccato ability they have to, to blow it's fantastic. Um, in fact, one of the times I heard it blown the best was one fellow thought it would be a good idea to bring it into the Rayburn building on Capitol Hill in the stairwell rotunda area and, and blow it. He didn't blow it long. Um, and it, it, it was his time to be carted out you know, and, and arrested. Um, but the way he blew it was, was quite interesting. Anyway, while the pilgrims watched, 
The priest processed around the altar with the, with the water jar. Uh, the temple choir singing the Hallel. That's Psalm 113 through 118. That's a long song. But they sang through the whole thing, which is the Mishnah. When the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim, that's, that's a lot, shook the lulav, willow and myrtle twigs tied with a palm. So they had some trees in one hand, or cuttings of trees. And in the right hand, um, while his left is raised, excuse me, when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook the branches in his right hand while his left raised a piece of citrus fruit. So he's got a lemon, a lime, grapefruit, orange, tangelo. Uh, had to be citrus. A sign of the ingathered harvest. And all cried, give thanks to the Lord three times. The water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice, along with the daily drink offering of wine. The wine and the water were poured into their respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. Moreover, these ceremonies of the Feast of the Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought to both the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. That's why John tied that note in there that we just read. Pouring at the Feast of the Tabernacles refers symbolically to the Messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. The water-pouring ceremony is interpreted in these traditions as a foretaste of the eschatological rivers of living water. From Ezekiel talks about this. Zechariah talks about this. These traditions are uh, the water miracle in the wilderness from the rock is turned a forerunner of the water rite of the Feast of Tabernacles. In general terms, he's giving us his summarization here. Jesus' pronouncement is clear. He is the fulfillment of all that the Feast of the Tabernacles anticipated. If Isaiah could invite the thirsty to drink from the waters, Jesus announces that he is the one who can provide those waters. So that in your mind, look back at this passage. On the last day of the feast, they've seen this seven times. They've had their orange in the air seven times. They've waved their branches. They've watched the high priest pour water from the pool of Siloam into this a uh, respective bowl along with a wine offering. Seven days. Then in the middle of all of this, Jesus stood up and cried out. The word cried means with volume and with much emotion, which are things that we haven't seen as of yet. But his hour is approaching. And here's what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What Jesus has done at the biggest feast of the year, with the most people in town, with one of the most meaningful things of their religion, their, their custom, their culture, their identity, is to say to everyone who's listening, all of that is this. This is me. I'm here. I'm your water. I fulfill all of this. I'm the Messiah. I'm God's son. So now you understand how one man may say, arrest that man for blasphemy and let's get this over with. And another man might say, 
No one's ever spoke like this guy. I'm, I'm, I'm all torn up. I've, I've got to figure out one of two things. Because if a man will say something like that, you've got to do something with it. If it's true, it changes everything. If it's false, he probably needs to be killed for it. Because you just don't say, I've fulfilled everything God's been planning and doing with these people that he took out of Egypt for hundreds of years. You just can't say that. Seriously. This isn't a joke. So, this idea I mentioned earlier, verse 30 and 31, some believed, some did not. That's something we're going to see with more and more vivid clarity as we move through. There's no neutral ground with Jesus. There's no just writing him off as some crazy nut. Either he's guilty of saying that he is God when he's not, which is a capital offense according to the Bible and that custom that we see it. Or he's him. The worst thing that you could possibly do is just say, eh, I don't know. It's one of those things that you just can't ignore. It's kind of like being told, you know, we ran this blood test and some certain things show that likely you may have cancer. Well, I need, I need to know about that. Because if I do, it changes everything. If I don't, we're going to throw a party. But it, it, it's not nothing. It's something. And at this point, you've got this whole group of Jews. It had gone from a guy doing some miracles out in the desert, and people are hearing about it. This is a great thing. But now he's gone too far. He's, he's laid it out on the table, and we've got to determine whether or not he's actually the Messiah or he's not at all. And there are going to be many that believe, but you know the end of the story. Most of them don't. And that's why he's crucified. But we've got a lot to think about. And in the remaining verses, we'll explore a little more about what these, these officials try to do with the men who couldn't arrest the man they'd never heard anyone speak like before. But with that said, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, it's hard for us to gather all this in, having not gone to the feast of booths or tabernacles from a child all the way to adulthood having seen the same thing over and over and over again and being taught these are promises that one day someone's going to come and fix all our problems and wipe all our tears and even more so Lord to quench our thirst Lord, I ask that you would show us. And most of the time you just do this through life. Nothing quenches our thirst here on this planet. There's way too much pain and sorrow and things we just had never thought could get so messed up. But just like the promises to the Hebrews... You extended those promises to the Gentiles and everyone on the planet. You're the bread of life. You're the living water. You're the lover of our soul. You're the forgiver of our sins. You're the righteousness and obedience that we just can't bring to the table. 
Lord, help us to make our decision as to whether or not we actually credit you with what you've said. You are or you aren't. But Lord, may we make up our mind and may you give us the faith to embrace you as our Savior and give you our everything. We thank you for this passage of Scripture today. We ask that you teach us with it. Give us understanding to make our assessment. We ask this in your name. Amen.